Romans chapter 5. Last week, Pastor Jeff began a series he entitled Citizens of Heaven. And when he said he wasn't going to be able to be here this Sunday, I said, do you you want me to continue that series or do you want me to do something different? He said, well, you can continue it, just don't mess it up. (laughs) Um, So next week he'll clean up anything that I've messed up. But um, let's read together from, from God's word here. Romans chapter 4, beginning with verse 13. Paul is writing about Abraham. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless, because the law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham believed Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. May God add his blessing to his word. You can be seated. Last weekend, I was helping with the work at the Greater New Beginning Church in Slavic Village, and I was reminded of something. I was up on the back roof of the church helping to scrape the siding from the peak above it, and that was fine. You know, I'm not afraid of heights or anything, but when I was ready to get from the roof onto the ladder to go down, I remembered, I'm not afraid of heights, but I am afraid of falling. Of course, as somebody told me once, you don't have to be afraid of falling. It's that sudden stop at the end that you have to be concerned about. But as I sat there for a moment, uh, I thought about the camp where Ginger and I worked during college. 
Church youth groups would come down to Tennessee to do various service projects in the communities there. And at the end of the week, they would go out and do a wilderness activity together. They'd do a hike or whitewater rafting or caving or rock climbing. During our staff training, we learned the proper setup for the ropes and webbing. We got so we could tie a figure eight on a bite or a water knot with our eyes closed. And we learned the commands. Any of you who have ever climbed know that verbal commands are very important for rock climbing. You have the person climbing, and then you have the person who is belaying or controlling the rope that goes up to a fitting at the top of the cliff and then back down to the climber's harness. The belayer can lock off the rope to support the climber if she falls. So we learned that call and response of of rock climbing. As the climber would step up to the cliff base, she would call to the belayer, on belay, and he would reply, belay on. Then she would say, climbing, and the response would come back, climb on. Got it? Well, let's, let's see. On belay? Preaching? I needed that this morning. Thank you. There are other important commands. A climber who's trying a difficult reach up to a handhold might call out, watch me, to be sure the belayer has the rope tight and can catch her if she doesn't quite make it. She can also call out tension if she needs to just lean on the rope and take a rest for a minute. And if she realizes her fingers aren't going to hold onto that ledge any longer, she can call out, falling, and the belayer knows to lock off the rope so he can catch her. But then, when she finally finishes that climb, she clips into one of the anchors at the top of the cliff. At that point, she's good. She's made it. She doesn't need the climbing rope anymore. So she calls down, off belay. And here's the response coming back up, belay off. That top edge of a cliff is a dangerous place. So we were taught that anyone within 10 feet of the edge needed to be anchored in so that we didn't slip and go over. And if anything, a stone or a rope or a carabiner got knocked over the edge, what do you do? Well, you yell out, rock, to warn the people down below to take cover so they didn't get brained. It's also why we wore helmets. And if you're kind of dumb and decide to propose to your girlfriend in a very dangerous place and she slips and starts to go over the edge, well, what do you do as a good boyfriend? Well, yell, rock! (laughs) If you're not properly anchored, she'd just pull you over too. But what I found amazing was how quickly I got over my fear of heights when I was rock climbing. You see, once I learned to trust the equipment and trust the setup and trust the person who was belaying me, I didn't have to worry about falling. So I could climb without fear. And when I got to the top, I could clip in and sit on the edge and enjoy that view of the beautiful Tennessee mountains. You know, we're climbing, every one of us, and life is an uphill climb from beginning to end. You might have noticed. 
What really makes the difference is whether we're anchored in or not, what we're putting our trust in. Right now, I hear from so many people, and I feel it myself, that it's so hard to know what to believe in this world. What is truth? We can feel like we in the world around us are just going over the edge, and all we can do is yell, rock! But you know, this feeling isn't anything new. 4,000 years ago, a man called Abraham experienced the very same thing. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. What made the difference for Abraham? What made him a citizen of heaven when he was living as a stranger in Canaan? Faith. What he trusted in, what he believed in. You know, it's an interesting phrase, believe in. We see it a lot in scripture, including in the Romans passage that we read today. But what does it mean? I think a lot of the problem today is that we try to cheapen this phrase in English. If you think about how people use it, or if you look it up in a dictionary, you'll see three main meanings. Our Romans passage shows us that these are important, but also that they fall short, and we need to go deeper. But let's begin. First, believe in can mean having belief that something exists. Often we use this to mean believing without any visible evidence, blind faith. I believe in Santa Claus. I believe in Bigfoot. And unfortunately, this is what many people mean when they say, I believe in God. I don't know why. I don't really have a good reason. But I believe in a big guy with a white beard upstairs. My friends, belief in God shouldn't be blind faith, or it won't hold up when we're pressed by the world. We may not see him with our eyes, but we can still have confidence and assurance in our belief. We should know why we believe. Abraham certainly believed in God's existence. Why? Well, Paul tells us he believed in the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. God created this world of infinite intricacy out of nothing. He is the source of life, and the resurrection of Jesus gives proof to that and so much more. That's why the New Testament authors emphasize again and again the historical reality of the resurrection. 
Because ignoring evidence isn't a virtue. Blind faith isn't biblical faith. And we can't just stop with believing in God's existence. James tells us, you believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Belief in God can't be less than believing he exists, but it has to be more. So second, believe in can also mean believing in a proposition. I believe in love at first sight. I believe that all men are created equal. Paul tells us that Abraham believed that God would fulfill what he had promised. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Abraham believed that God would do what he had said, and he believed in what God had done. By the time we're told in Genesis that Abraham believed God, what Paul is quoting from here, God had saved Abraham from his own sinful lies in Egypt. God strengthened Abraham to defeat four kings and their armies with a group of just 318 men. Abraham had let go of his material belongings. He'd been generous with God, and he had seen God's blessing. Paul tells us these words were written not for him alone, but also for us. My friends, we can't sub out our faith. We can't base our faith on what someone else says the Bible says. We need to know for ourselves. Too many Christians allow one guy in a suit and what he says for 20 minutes on a Sunday morning to be their entire interaction with God's word. It occurs to me that despair over the state of our world is often evidence of a poor understanding of history and of his story. In my daily devotions recently, I've been reading through Jeremiah and about how he suffered through Judah's apostasy and through the destruction of Jerusalem. He saw the turmoil of international politics, rebellion, warfare, famine, disease, injustice, assassinations, and life as a refugee. A few weeks ago, I was reading to our son Wilson from the book of Ruth, and it struck me that in that book, a 10-year famine is a footnote to the story. The early church faced humiliation, rejection, poverty, and death for their faith, and the church grew. You might say, well, those things, it's good that you know them, Pastor, but I'm, I'm not an academic person, and the Bible just seems so complicated. Aren't we supposed to just have faith like a little child? Well, yes, we are, but have you listened to children recently? They ask tough questions. Once a boy asked his father, Daddy, where does poo come from? And the dad sighed, and as best as he could, he explains what happens to the food that we eat. The son's eyes got larger and larger. And when his father finally finished, he just sat there for a minute. And then he said, what about Tigger?
Some of you will get it a few points later. <clears throat> Last winter at the Rooted in Truth conference, they had a session for children. Adam helped to lead that. And they encouraged the kids to bring their questions about God and about faith. Our Joelle, who was six at the time, took a long while to write out her questions beforehand. And when they got to the question and answer time, she put up her little hand and asked, why did God create us if he knew we were going to sin? Kids don't shy away from tough questions. Neither should grown-ups. My friends, are you willing to ask the tough questions? And are you willing to look for the answers? If you believe the Bible is God's word, are you reading it? You know, if we don't know God's word, we're tying our hands behind our back when we try to figure out what's true in this world. If you find yourself really wondering today, what is true? What can you trust? Ask yourself, am I looking to God's word to show me what's most important? Or am I trusting Rush Limbaugh or Jimmy Kimmel or some random guy on YouTube to interpret the events of the day? You know what that leads to? Rock! Do we belong to this world, or are we citizens of heaven? We should read the Bible closely, and we should read it broadly. J.I. Packer was a Canadian theologian who wrote Knowing God. He passed away this summer at the age of 93. But he said many times during his life, any Christian worth his salt ought to read the Bible from cover to cover every year. I'll be the first to admit, I fall short of that bar. But have you ever read the whole Bible? You know, there are Bibles that are structured and there are reading plans that are set up that will order it all out to you so that you can actually get through it in a year. It's, it's not easy, but most things that are worthwhile aren't easy. I think where most of us bog down in Bible reading is when we get to a point where we just don't understand what's going on. It helps to know something about the Bible's context, about the genre of those 66 books between its covers, even about key words in the original languages. But you don't have to know that to get started. Get yourself a good study Bible. That helps a lot. Check out things like the Bible Project videos for an overview of, of a book before you get into it. When you find something you don't understand, dig a little. Do some research. Ask someone who's a mentor in your faith. You could ask one of us on ministry staff. And if someone asks you and you're not sure of the answer, please be honest. Look together for what God's word says. I've talked to far too many people who gave up on faith because a priest or a parent or a friend tried to fake it and shut down the conversation. None of us has all the answers, and there are great mysteries about God that our human brains can't fully comprehend, but that doesn't mean they're not true, or that we shouldn't ask the questions. And as you read Trust in This, you're not doing it alone. Pray that the Holy Spirit will guide you into truth as you read the Bible in faith. 
A couple of weeks ago at our Saturday morning men's study, we watched a video by Mark Batterson. He said, we don't just read the Bible. The Bible reads us. The spirit who inspired the ancient writers as they wrote is the same spirit who inspires modern-day readers as they read. The Holy Spirit is on both sides of the equation. But I hope you see that there's still a problem here for us. As important as it is to believe that God exists, that's not enough. And as important as it is to know his word, God isn't a collection of facts or moral directions. He isn't a proposition. He's a person. So a third way that we can use believe in can mean having trust in a person's abilities or character. If your daughter goes out to play in a little league game, you can say, I believe in you. Abraham believed in God's character, and so should we. Paul writes, through Jesus we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. He is good, and he is gracious and glorious, and we should boast in those things. But ultimately, I believe in you. It's kind of patronizing, isn't it? We usually only use this when we're trying to cheer somebody up, to encourage them. And if we're honest, we usually only use this when we don't have any real stake in the outcome. God doesn't need us to encourage him. And we have every stake in the outcome of our belief. So what does that leave us? None of these believe-ins is really adequate for our faith in God. Well, the King James translation of the Bible actually gave me something very interesting to think about in this area. Did any of you memorize Acts 16.31 from the King James Version? Maybe? What does it say? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Believe on. The King James translators, by my count, used believe on 44 times in the Bible, and they used believe in 30 times. Now, as near as I can tell, in fairness, in the year 1611, the two phrases really meant the same thing. Prepositions were used a little bit more loosely than they are today. And even today, we can say that a building burned up or burned down, and we're talking about the same thing, right? But believe on got me thinking, because I think it can shed some light on our problem today. Modern English does us a bit of a disservice. The question isn't so much what we put our belief in, as though our infusing our willpower will make God worthy of belief. If I believe hard enough, I can make him real. If I believe unquestioningly, his words will be true. If I believe in him, he'll be there for me. That might make for a good Disney movie, but it definitely makes for bad theology. God doesn't need us to put our belief in him. He isn't a presidential candidate or a political party who needs our votes. The world asks what we believe in. God asks who we believe on. The Bible is clear we can't believe on ourselves. 
Paul says that Abraham, without weakening in his faith, faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. We can't save ourselves. You know, the story of the Bible is that our true home isn't on this cliff face. We're supposed to be at the top, with God, citizens of a much better country. But we fell. And on our own, we'll find that every crumbling rock, every overreach and betrayal takes us right back down. Rock, but Jesus came down with us. He climbed up this cliff flawlessly. And then he took on himself every slip and stumble and betrayal of ours, and he crashed down to that death on this cross. But he didn't stop there. Metaphors like this break down, but but let me press it just a little bit further. We might say that he had carried a rope up to the top for us because he got back up. If we're willing, he'll fasten us into a harness, and he tells us to lay on. In the King James, Paul says, We believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and who was raised again for our justification. So when we fall, he catches us. He takes our weight on himself. Sometimes he hoists us over a section we just can't climb on our own. That doesn't mean we won't get scraped up along the way. But we will not be overcome because he is the way. This is why Paul can write that we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. When I was rereading this recently, it suddenly struck me that it's not just that suffering builds character. No, I realize that it's through suffering that we really know hope. It's only when our own grip crumbles that we learn to trust in the ropes. It's only when we face difficulty that we begin to truly believe on God. And we aren't trusting in just some random rope we found coming down the cliff face. No, we're in conversation with the one who's belaying us. Jesus, watch me. His eye is on the sparrow, and he knows every hair on our heads. Tension, I need to rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light and you will find rest for your soul. We know we're connected to him and we know he's got us. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. There's one last thing I'd like us to notice. When Paul starts applying Abraham's story to his readers, he doesn't use you. He doesn't use I. He uses we. He uses us. When we were doing rock climbing in Tennessee, we'd encourage the youth to support one another. Those at the bottom would cheer their friends along. A stronger climber might point out handholds to someone who is struggling. And we'd remind them 
Don't let your friends give up. Keep encouraging them until they reach the top and say, belay off. That's exactly what we're supposed to do as the church. So what do you believe on today? What are you resting your life on? What ropes are you trusting on when your grip on the ledge slips? God doesn't so much need us to believe that he exists or in his moral propositions or that he has a good character. All of those are true, and they are important. But what we most need is to believe on him, to base our whole life on him. Because if we don't, we'll believe on something else, and nothing else can support our weight. Will you pray with me? Lord God, I thank you. I thank you that you are. That you are the God who created this world, who created us, and who gives us new life. God, I thank you that you are the God who keeps his promises that you have given us your word so that we might know how you have been at work, that we might know what you are like and who you are. And God, I thank you that you are good and you are gracious and you are worthy of our worship. But God, I thank you that when we could not save ourselves, that you made a way for us to believe on you. That as we place our trust on you, as we lean on you, that we can be restored to you. That we can be given eternal life. That we can become citizens of heaven even now and begin living like Jesus in this world. God, make us Jesus to one another. May we encourage one another. May we strengthen one another. May we keep one another climbing until we finally hear, well done, good and faithful servant.